0: Turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. I mentioned that we're going to be going through a series through the book of Acts. And today I want to preach to you a message, an overview message of what we're going to be looking at. What I say today could cover the entire book of Acts, but I'm going to specifically focus on the first 12 chapters because that's what our study is going to be. It would take us well over a year Probably to study the whole book of Acts. And so I want to kind of break it up a little bit. Did you know that, that Acts is the second longest book in the New Testament? Just barely inches out Matthew. And do you know what the, the longest book in the New Testament is? It is the book of Luke. And Luke also wrote Acts. He's a man of after my own heart. He's long-winded, right? He writes a long-winded gospel account. He writes a, a long Follow-up account, and so we're going to look at the book of Acts. Do you like sequels? You know, I, I know people that have mixed feelings about sequels. Maybe they're all in on sequels, or they think sequels are terrible. I have a friend growing up; who's kind of like a, you know, kind of a self-made movie critic, I guess, in his eyes, and and he always felt like sequels were just never as good as as the original. But I wonder, what do you think of sequels? Do you are you generally excited when you know of a sequel that's coming out, or? You're pessimistic that it's not going to be as good. And uh, I wonder what's the best sequel you've ever watched or the best sequel you've ever read, if it's a, a novel series or a book, or what's the worst? I actually did some study this week and looked up what has, what is, what is, I guess, been chosen as the best sequel of all time. And I think my kids approved. I don't know if you will approve, but Paddington 2 was listed as the most I guess, prominent sequel of, of, I guess, recent history. And if you've never seen Paddington 1, friend, you are robbing yourself of something special here. And if you haven't seen Paddington 2, by all means, do so as soon as possible. You say, why are we talking about sequels? We're talking about sequels because the book of Acts is a sequel. And you know what a sequel is? The definition of a sequel is a published, broadcasted, or recorded work that continues the story or develops the theme of an earlier one. And so Acts is the sequel of the Gospel of Luke. Originally, it was included together. It was Luke Acts with kind of a hyphen between Luke hyphen Acts. And it was probably separated. In the Bible that we currently have, if you open up your New Testament, you're going to find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So why is there John? How did did he get in the middle, I guess, of of Luke and Acts? Well, probably because when they were putting together the, 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 the books of the Bible in the order that we have them in, they were doing them somewhat thematically, putting them together by themes. So they put the four Gospels together, and that kind of separated Acts from Luke a little bit. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But just know that Luke also wrote Acts. And the book of Acts continues what he was writing, as we'll see today, in the book of Luke. It's a sequel. Now, he's writing to someone named Theophilus. We're going to see that in a minute. We don't know a whole lot about Theophilus, other than that fact he has a cool name. It means someone that's a, a lover of God. And uh, so, what do we know about this? Well, we don't know a whole lot about him. Probably, he was Gentile, meaning he was not Jewish. He is probably a, a convert of Jesus Christ. He had become a Christian, more than likely. And Luke is writing to him to help strengthen his faith. And he's called Most Excellent Theophilus. It probably means he was someone with power and authority. It's probably... Some kind of high-ranking official, maybe even in in the Roman Empire of some kind. And so Luke is writing to him about the gospel of Jesus and even his own place in this. Now the Acts or Acts, kind of an interesting title. You know, you you look at Luke or Galatians or or, you know other books of the Bible, that they kind of have they're either called by someone's name or they're referring to like a, a location, right? Galatians is written to the people who live in Galatia. But what about Acts? Somewhat of a, a strange name for a book. Acts of who or Acts of what? That's actually been a lot of debate by Christians. You know, it's probably in your Bible. In fact, turn to the first chapter of Acts. And how many of you it says, you're not in trouble if it says this, by the way. <laughs> but how many of it says the Acts of the Apostles? Mind us. Any of your Bibles say that? Just raise your hand. No one online can see. You don't have to be ashamed. They can just see me right now. I wonder how many of you at home it says that. Acts of the Apostles, right? And that's okay. Some people say, but that's not quite right. Some say it should be really Acts of Peter and Paul. Because as we're going to see, they're the primary human subjects of the book of Acts. Others say, you know, it really should be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I probably think that's better than Acts of the Apostles. Others say it should be Acts of Jesus Christ. Because he talks about how that what Jesus began to do and teach. He continues. I think that's good. I think probably best though we could say it's the Acts of God. It's the Acts of God the Father through Jesus His Son in the power of the Holy Spirit by the church that's what i think the message of the book of acts is it's what god is doing through the work of jesus in the power of the holy spirit so you have the whole trinity involved there and he's doing this work by christians by human beings who've been saved and redeemed we call that the church and so what I want you to see is that Acts helps us to understand that the gospel account of Luke, or any of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's not the end of the story. There is more to the story. There is a sequel, if you will. And so I want you to look with me. I told you to turn to Acts 1, but I actually want you to turn to Luke chapter 1 first. Just hold your finger at Acts 1, um, and then just turn back over a little bit to Luke 1. I want you to see a couple things here. At the beginning of Luke 1, that will help us understand this sequel a little bit better. For as much as I have taken in hand, this is Luke 1 verse 1, for as much as I have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So Luke himself was more than likely not an eyewitness of Jesus' life and ministry. But he has received the account from eyewitnesses like the apostles. Verse 3 It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So here this person named Theophilus has already been taught and instructed. He knows about Jesus and the gospel, but now he's being written to by Luke to help to strengthen his faith and to be even more convinced of the truthfulness of the gospel. Now, the gospel of Luke, what does he do? He goes through and he talks about the life of Jesus, beginning with his birth in Bethlehem and through his ministry, his miracles, his messages, and then culminating with his death on the cross. His resurrection from the dead. Turn to Luke chapter 24. That's the last chapter in Luke. This is when Jesus is risen from the dead. He appears to his followers, to his disciples. And at the end of Luke, we have kind of the the final words of Jesus to them as recorded in the gospel of Luke. I want to look at Luke 24 verse 44. And you can see it on the screen there where we're going next if you kind of want to get ahead of me. But Luke 24, verse 44, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spoke unto you, while I was yet with you, that all things must, must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ... To suffer and to rise from the, the dead the third day. And behooved is, is really this idea of being necessary. It was necessary for Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. So he says they're going to preach this message of repentance and forgiveness in the name of Jesus. But he says, wait in Jerusalem until I send the the, the promise of my Father upon you. Verse 50, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass that while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continuing in the temple praising and blessing God. Oh, Amen. So that's how the book of Luke, excuse me, ends. Now, look at Acts chapter one. Acts chapter one, beginning in verse one, the former treatise or the former volume, right? Have I made, O Theophilus, same person he's writing to, of all that Jesus, and this is a really important word, began to do and teach the story of Jesus. Is not over, Luke is saying. Verse 2, So while he began to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion or his, his death by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded that they should not depart from Jerusalem. We just read that in Luke, right? He said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Now, what is that promise of the Father? It tells us in verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days hence, or not many days from now, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, "It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power or His own authority, but you shall receive power or, or or supernatural ability. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth." And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld or while they were watching him, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, You men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So what we learn is that the Gospel of Luke is not the end of the story. We have the book of Acts to tell us the the rest of the story and you know when Jesus died on the cross he said it is finished and many people have pointed out he didn't say I am finished he said it is finished and the reason I want to point this out is because what Jesus did in his death and resurrection there's a sense in which his work is completed he paid once and for all the, 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 the debt and price of of sin on the cross salvation has been fully purchased it's been fully paid for there is no more work left for Jesus to do as it relates to paying the price for salvation so not only was salvation paid for and and purchased on the cross it was proved by his resurrection from the dead Jesus rose again from the dead, and and one of the things that His resurrection announces is that everything He promised is true. The one who's risen from the dead is the Savior and Lord and King. So it was proved to be true, the salvation He offered, by His resurrection. So what do we mean when we say, though, that the story's not over? Salvation's been purchased, it's been paid for, it's been proved... By the resurrection, but now, friends, it must be preached and proclaimed to the nations. That is what is not finished. So what I think the book of Acts is about, if I could summarize it in two words, it would be these two words. Unfinished business. Unfinished business. In, in, in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 12, we're going to see that Jesus is not finished with the work that he was doing. And so the the message today, and really the, the overview of the series in the book of Acts we're going to look at, this is it. If you want to write this down, you can. It's about a sentence long. I'll try to say it slowly in case you want to write it down. God has unfinished business in this world. And he is accomplishing it through the work of Christ in the power of the Spirit, by us the church i'll say it again god has unfinished business in this world and he is accomplishing it through the work of christ in the power of the spirit by us the church unfinished business let's pray together father thank you that we get to do this together as a church we get to go through the book of acts so we get to learn not only about what Christ did on the cross and and what He did in rising from the dead, but also what He did through the, the New Testament church in the early days after Your resurrection and ascension to heaven and what You're continuing to do now through us. Lord, we need to hear from You today. By Your Spirit, God, speak to us about this unfinished task that you are doing right now in the world. I pray that you would give us, Lord, fresh encouragement, a fresh and renewed passion to join you in this unfinished task, to serve you with all of our hearts until you call us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God has unfinished business in the world and He is accomplishing it through the work of Christ, in the power of the Spirit, by us, the church. And I want to look at five truths today about the unfinished business that God is doing in this world. Five truths. The first thing I want you to see is what I call the message of God. When we talk about unfinished business, we're talking about, number one, the message of God. And the message of God is that the crucified, risen, Ascended and reigning Christ calls all people to repent and believe on His name for the for the forgiveness of sins. That's the message of God. The message that God is getting into the world is that the crucified, risen, ascended and reigning Christ calls all people to repent of their sins and to believe on His name for the forgiveness of their sins. And about half of, or about a third of the book of Acts are speeches or, or sermons that are delivered depending on who you read behind there's about 10 or 15 different sermons that are depending on how you characterize a sermon but there are a number of sermons preached by Peter preached by Paul that we can read and say well, what was it like to listen to them preach well we can read their sermons at least a portion of their sermons and so what was the message that they preached Or those that weren't preachers in a formal sense, what was the message that they witnessed, that they shared with people? One-on-one in the marketplace, or around a table eating a meal, or standing up in a crowd of people. What was the message that they proclaimed? Well, there are really about six things or so that we're going to look at really quickly. They preached about the life of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. Look at Acts 2 verse 22. Peter is speaking here. He says, you men of Israel, hear these things. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did, again this is the works of God through Jesus, so which God did by him in the midst of you as you yourselves also know. They're talking about this one named Jesus who lived this amazing life in front of them doing signs and wonders, teaching and preaching and living this perfect life that was blameless. So they talked about the life of Jesus. Secondly, they talked about this one who was rejected and crucified. And that's key to their message. Look at the same passage. You're looking at Luke 2, verse, now look at verse 23. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. This is another message being preached. It says, But you denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of life. How about chapter 4, verse 27 and 28? For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined beforehand to be done. So the message, and I could read you many other passages it's not only about Jesus' life, but about his death, how he was rejected and crucified. So, what's the third aspect of the message they preached? Well, it's about the resurrection of Jesus. And more than any other book of the Bible, the book of Acts focuses on the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus was one of the key reoccurring themes that they witnessed and that they preached to people. Look again at chapter 2, Acts 2, verse 24. Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held of it or holden of it. How about, look at chapter 3, verse 15. They said, you've killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 10. Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, whom God raised from the dead. All through the book of Acts you find this message, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. The fourth thing is that this gospel is not just news to be heard, but it must be responded to. And so the fourth part of the message, the life of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, but fourth, there was a call to respond in this message. Repentance and faith in His name for the forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 2, verse 37, when they heard this, they they were pricked or they were cut to the heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter says, Repent. He baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when they repented of their sins and when they believed by faith in Jesus to save them, they were to be baptized as an open and public demonstration of that faith. That's the part of the message that they're preaching. Fifth thing I want you to see that's really important in the book of Acts is that everything that they were preaching and witnessing was all a part of what had been prophesied in the Old Testament. That's the fifth thing that's about the message that they preached. That they weren't preaching something completely new or foreign. They were actually making great pains to show people that all of this you can find in your Old Testament. All of this you can find in the Psalms, and in the prophets, and in the Torah, and the writings of Moses. And they went through and showed and demonstrated over and over and over again. Chapter 2, verse 16 through 21, Peter stands up and says, But this is what's spoken by the prophet Joel. He goes on and says in verse 25, For David speaketh concerning him. He speaks about David again in chapter 2 verse 34 for David is not ascended and he begins to quote scripture from the Psalms chapter 3 verse 18 but these things which God hath showed by the mouth of all the prophets you know why he's saying all this he's saying all this because he's talking to Jewish people who rejected Jesus saying that you are some kind of foreign Messiah but no, no no Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah. And they go through and really, you find this all through the book of Acts. So the message finally was not only about the life of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the response of repentance and faith demanded, and the fact that all of this was by Prophecy in the Old Testament. Number six, the last part of the message is that Jesus is Lord of everything. Look at Acts 2 verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Then look at verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly That God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Their message that they proclaimed is that Jesus is Lord. You know how amazing it is to me is to read the book of Acts and to see that the same message is found throughout the book, but yet there's of variety in the way that they communicate it's not the exact same word order every time you look at a different message by peter or paul or someone in the church you find that there are different ways they communicate it but never a different gospel all of those things you will always find there it's about jesus about his death about his resurrection about how that if you are going to be saved by him you must repent and believe on his name all of this is according to the old testament and that jesus Demands this because he is Lord. And I want to say to you today that the message is still the same for us. Woe to Living Hope Church and woe to you and woe to I if we preach any other message but this message. This must be our message. We have to declare this. We have to witness this to the people that we love and care for. You know, there's a, there's a watered-down gospel in our world today. A, a gospel that simply says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And He wants to make you successful. So you can have a great TikTok page, a lot of Instagram followers. He has a wonderful plan for your life. He wants to take away all your problems. He wants to make you rich and wealthy and prosperous. And that's the sum total of many people's gospel. Friends, that's a false gospel. God does have a wonderful plan for your life but it requires you dying to yourself coming humbly to the cross repenting trusting in his son and then bearing your own cross of shame in this world and he gives to all who trust in him eternal life friends that's our message Adrian Rogers is a pastor and I used to love to listen to his sermons, and he used to say that many people can witness better than me, and they can preach better than me. He said, but no one could witness or preach a better gospel than me. And you know what he's saying by that? He's saying there may be people that can do it better. There may be people that can say it with more eloquence. But no one has better content than me. Because all of us who are Christians, we have the same Message, and let me encourage you with something, friends. The power is not in your presentation. The power is in the gospel itself. That's where the power lies. We have that same message. If you're watching today or here today and you're not a Christian, I hope you understand the core message of the gospel. It's the only way that you can be saved. It's by trusting in this Jesus who died, who is risen from the dead, and you must turn from your sins. You must believe on him and in his name alone believe for salvation and forgiveness of sins. And all of this is according to what is promised in the Old Testament and that he is Lord of everything. Is he your Lord? That is the question. And that's the message we must proclaim. The book of Acts is about the message of God. Secondly, it's about the mission of God. Now, what's the mission of God? The mission is that this message is to be sent to the furthest part of the earth, starting at Jerusalem, spanning out to all the nations of the world, including Jews and Gentiles. That's the mission of God. You know, look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts 1 8 really could be an outline for the whole book of Acts. But you will receive power. After that the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The reason I say, and I'm not the first to say this, I've seen other many other people say this, the reason that can be an outline for the book of Luke, I mean the book of Acts, is because the first twelve chapters deal largely with ministry in Jerusalem. And then chapter 13 through chapter 28 deal with the mission leaving Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and expanding out to the world. If you want to get really specific, the first five chapters of Acts are basically all in Jerusalem. Then when you get to chapter 6 through chapter 12, they're in Jerusalem, but they're also expanding to places like Samaria and Judea, the surrounding areas. But then when you get to chapter 13... Then they start to expand beyond that. And by the end of it, Paul is planning to go to Rome. And the gospel has been spread to all the known world at that time. And so this is what the mission of God is. And it begins in Jerusalem. It begins to the Jew first, but then also to the Gentile. Isn't that what Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, the power of God unto salvation and to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Meaning it was preached first to the house of Israel, to the Jewish people, but now it's spread beyond to be preached to all the nations. The mission begins in Jerusalem. It's the first address to the house of Israel, but it, soon it expands to the Gentiles and Amazingly, through a man named Saul of Tarsus, who's converted and called to be a chosen vessel, he carries the name of Jesus to the Gentiles. One who used to persecute Christians becomes a Christian, and he takes the message to the Gentiles. Look at at, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, speaking about... Saul, who would be known as Paul to us. But the Lord said to him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel, that is, Paul is a chosen vessel, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. What this is saying is the mission of God, it's not going to stay in Jerusalem. It's going to go to all the world. Peter learned this truth in a really remarkable way. Uh, One day he he was really hungry and tired, and he fell into a trance. He had a vision. And a vision came from God. And what happened was this this big blanket was coming down from the sky. And uh, it brings it down. It's got all this food on it. But all the food in the blanket is against the Mosaic law, the dietary laws of the Old Testament. In other words, it was forbidden for Peter to eat this food. And God says to him, or the angel says to him, eat and he says, I, I can't eat this. I can't any, eat anything that's, that's unclean. This is against the law. And God says to him, don't call what I say is clean, unclean. Eat. So what was the point of this? Peter wakes up and realizes that he's no longer to view Gentiles or non-Jews. He's no longer to view them as unclean. That God is making one body of Christ Made up of Jews and Gentiles. Not Jews and separate Gentiles, but Jews and Gentiles. He says, Don't call what I have made clean unclean. Rather go and preach the gospel to them. And those that believe, baptize them and, and, and admit them into the fellowship of the church. And we see this happening through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 4 tells us that they went everywhere, scattered, Preaching the word. That's the mission. I wonder if you and I, friends, have we lost sight of this mission? That this is the mission. The mission is not just my my future. The mission is not just my family. The, the, the mission is, is, is not just my retirement plans. And friends, the mission is that every person needs to hear. The good news of Jesus and what role can you and I as individuals and then what role can we together as a church play in getting the gospel to the nations I would say well it starts right here and we can look around and we could call this our Jerusalem but when that's where we start right and if we're not going to reach people here then we're sure not going to reach them around the world so we start here in our Jerusalem, and we, and we need to be working to get the gospel to people around us. I wonder, are you doing that? Am I doing that? I'm ashamed that I'm not doing more of that. One of the reasons I, I want to preach through Acts is for me and for you as well, that we would be stirred up to share it with those that we work and live with and around us, to share this message. But then God is uniquely blessed, living hope, to be such a multicultural church. It's a multi-ethnic church with so many different languages being spoken in this church. Contacts around the world. I mean, just here we can look around the room and many of us know people all around the world. Imagine as God is changing our lives and imagine as we begin to influence other people, imagine the impact world could experience in places where we have family and friends and then by doing things like we did today by praying for missionaries and giving to support the work of missions we can be a part of seeing that this mission of God to get the message to the ends of the earth is accomplished Thirdly, I want you to see the means of God. And by the way, for this outline, I'm really indebted to, to two people. I, I listened to a sermon that was preached about 20 years ago, and I read a commentary and both of those together really helped to develop this, this, this message today, this, this outline. It's not, this outline really isn't original with me. A message by a man named Mark Dever and a book written by a man named Daryl Bach really helped to put this together. So we see the, uh, the, the, the mission of God, the message of God, thirdly, the means of God. And what are we talking about with that, the means of God? Well, the Lord uses redeemed sinners to witness and proclaim the gospel. What does God use to accomplish the mission better? Who does God use? Well, obviously God has worked through His Son. God does not do anything in this world apart from the saving work of Jesus. And and most certainly, God does what He does in the power of His Holy Spirit. But I want you to see that the means or the instruments that God uses... To do his unfinished work in the world are redeemed sinners like us. And when you read the book of Acts, there are two people that emerge as the leading instruments, the leading human instruments that God uses to do his work. Peter is the primary focus of Acts 1 through 12, although Paul is, is certainly a part of that. It's Peter who's primarily the subject. And then in Acts 13 through 28, Paul is the one who's in the focus. Those are the two human people in the book of Acts that we find most often. But there are other people, lesser known people, or just completely unknown people who are mightily used by God in the book of Acts. You don't have to be famous like Peter or Paul to be marvelously used by God. In Acts chapter 7, we learn about Stephen. In Acts 8, we learn about Philip. In Acts 9, we learn about Ananias. In, in Acts 9, in Acts 11, we learn about Barnabas. In Acts 9, we learn about Tabitha. We learn about a man named Agabus in Acts chapter 11. And then there's a host of other people whose names are never even mentioned, but whom God uses. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brethren. A lot of unnamed people there, but who are greatly used by God. How about Acts chapter 2, verse 47? Some more unnamed people who are used by God. Praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. In other words, God is using the unnamed and unknown just as much as He's using Peter and Paul to accomplish His work. There was a God-fearing Gentile named Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He's the one that God had that, the reason God gave that vision to to Peter was so that when Peter woke up, he would go and share the gospel with this God-fearing, unsaved Gentile named Cornelius. He had never heard the good news. You know what I find really interesting about this story though? An angel speaks to Peter in this vision about the, the blanket coming down with all the food on it. And at the same time, an angel speaks to Cornelius, saying, you need to go and call for a man named Simon Peter. You follow me? An angel talking to Peter, an angel talking to Cornelius. You know, you could say, why doesn't God cut out the middleman here? Okay, angel, you proclaim the gospel to Peter. Angel, you proclaim the gospel to Cornelius. We don't even need Peter. We could cut out the middleman here. Why go through all the trouble to have this elaborate vision to stir up Peter to go share the message? Why this elaborate vision to stir up Cornelius to go and want Peter to come? Oh, well, I hope you're awake today. Because God has chosen human beings, He's chosen you. He's not given an angel this task, He's given you and me. This task, He could have chosen angels, but He's not. He has chosen human beings. We are the means. We are the instruments. We are His plan for disciple-making. He's chosen to work through our witness. And if that doesn't excite you, I don't know what else to do for you. You and I, of all the means God could have chosen, He's chosen us. He could have given this task to angels. He didn't. He gave it to imperfect but redeemed sinners. Fourthly, I want you to see what I call the malevolence against God. The malevolence. By that I mean the church faces intense persecution because of the message that they proclaim. You know, look at at Acts chapter 2 verse 47 one more time. I just read it. But if this is if it all ended here we would think wow man the church was it was just a wonderful blessed just so received received so well in the community look at acts 247 they're praising God having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved man the, the we could read that and say the church is the most popular thing going I mean, it's like Disneyland, right? Everybody wants to go and be a part of this gathering. But, friends, we we quickly learn that it wasn't all roses for the Christians in Jerusalem and beyond. In fact, the first three chapters, everything seems to be going along so easily. But everything changes, it seems like, in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are arrested by Jewish authorities. They're questioned and threatened. Well, they, they, they don't stop. They have, a, they have a command to preach the gospel, and so they keep preaching. And What happens? Well, in Acts chapter 5, they're arrested again. This time they're beaten, threatened again. In Acts chapter 7, we learn of Stephen, who becomes the first Christian martyr. He's taken outside and stoned. We learn about a zealous Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus, who's earned quite the reputation for taking people out of their homes, throwing them in prison and seeing them brutalized and murdered. Look at Acts chapter 9 verse 13. This is when a man named Ananias receives a vision. He's told to go and speak to Saul of Tarsus, but he doesn't want to. And you wouldn't want to either. Because look at Acts 9:13. Then Ananias answered, "Lord, I've heard many of you. By many of of this man, how much evil he's done in thy name, excuse me, has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. Look at Acts 9, verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, this is after his conversion, he truly has become a Christian. He essayed or he sought to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. They thought he's a mole. Thinking he's trying to kind of pretend to be a Christian, to find out. More that he can about them and to do them harm. Look at Acts chapter eleven. We see more about what they had learned about this Paul, verse nineteen. Now there were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. It says they traveled and talks about all the distance that they had traveled. Now, why was that? They traveled that distance and scattered because the persecution that Saul of Tarsus had created. So you say, what's the point of all this? The point of all this is it proves what Jesus said in John 15, verse 18. If the world hate you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And the book of Acts reveals that persecution Persecution against the church is actually persecution against God Himself. Isn't that what the Lord said to Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9 verse 4? Acts 9 verse 4, And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? That's why I say that the, it's, it's malviolence against God. It's, it's, it's this against god this evil that is perpetrated against god you know what i thought about too as i was reading this this week does anyone hate me does anyone hate you because of the message that we share now some people may hate me because i've been a jerk to them in the past some people may hate me because you know i i I wasn't going fast enough in the fast lane or i don't know i mean there's I wonder, does anyone hate us? And the only reason is because we share this message about Jesus. I observed a conversation this week, two people I know. There's an older brother who I know, he was humbly and lovingly sharing the gospel with his younger brother. His younger brother used to profess to be a Christian, but he's recently declared himself to be a homosexual. His brother was not being unkind. His brother was not being mean. His brother was not being harsh. His brother was lovingly sharing the gospel with him. His brother was talking about himself, his own sin and guilt, and how that his only hope has been in the forgiveness of Jesus. He wasn't coming at this from like a self-righteous person. I'm better than you. He's saying, no, both of us need Jesus. And I have turned and trusted in him, and I'm asking you to turn and trust in him. And you can't have eternal life and follow this lifestyle. Just as I couldn't have eternal life and follow the different kinds of sins that I was following before. You know what happened to this older brother? In fact, I can't imagine anyone sharing the gospel any more humbly and lovingly than he did. And you wouldn't believe the backlash. The vitriol. The others around that were just accusing him of just the the worst possible things that you can imagine. I can't believe you hate your brother this way by by telling him he can't live. This is how he was born. Love is love. And you're standing in that, I mean, just all of this just coming at. And and he responded back to those with just as much kindness and humility. And yet, in the name of love, such hate was being poured out on him. As I observed all that, I I thought to myself, are you and I hated by anyone? Not because we want to be hated. Not because we seek it out. Not because with vain poppings in our face we tell people repent, turn, and burn. And because we simply and lovingly share this message. And we do it humbly. But we share this message. And let me just say, if you share this message with a soft and kind voice, You will be hated. You want a test case on that? Go on your Facebook, your Instagram page, and share the gospel message. And share verses like 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, which gives a list of all of those who will not have eternal life unless they turn from their sins. Things like drunkenness and greed and covetousness and homosexual practice and immorality, which is heterosexual sin, adultery, and fornication. And share that on your Facebook page or your Instagram page. And say, if you follow this lifestyle, as I used to, because all of us are guilty of some of those sins, if not a majority of those sins, greed and covetousness and thievery and all these things that we've all been guilty of. Say if you don't turn from these things, you'll spend eternity separate from God. And I want to plead with you to repent and turn to Christ as I have done. Oh, and just watch your Facebook page blow up. Does anyone hate you? Because the message you share? You know, I, I, I think more people don't hate us because, quite frankly, we just don't share it. And now, I, I'm, not, I'm not on a campaign to try to be hated. I don't like to be hated. If you know me, you know that I have to fight against people-pleasing. But friends, if we're going to be faithful, we're going to be hated. Jesus said, if you're my followers, they hated me, they will hate you. You don't get a pass from that if you're a Christian. You will be hated. The real question is, those of you online and those of you here, who do you want to be loved by? you want to be loved by the world or do you want to be faithful to Christ? Finally, last of all, I want you to see the mastery of God. That in spite of all the persecution and all the suffering, the mission of God and the message of the gospel triumphs. And that's what the book of Acts tells us. It shows us the triumph of God and His gospel over everything that opposes. The book of Acts begins with this triumphant moment of Jesus ascending up to heaven. I mean, He's triumphing over gravity even. I mean, nothing can hold back the Lord of glory. Death couldn't hold Him. The ground can't hold Him. Nothing can hold Him. He is ascending back up to heaven. This one is the Lord and Christ, and He sends out His witnesses to go into all the nations. The triumph of God is seen in the fact that He sends His Spirit to empower them. One of the things you're going to notice as we go through the book of Acts is just how different Peter is in Acts than he was in Luke. In Luke, he was a coward and ashamed and selfish. In the book of Acts, he's bold and humble preaching faithfully the gospel even when he's put in prison and beaten multiple times why the change the power of the spirit in his life the mastery and victory of God is on display as thousands are converted to Christ and forgiven of their sins in acts 241 it says 3000 at one time believed in acts chapter 3 we learn that now the number has grown up to 5000 men more women and children i'm sure then we see the victory of God in the persecutions and the beatings and the imprisonments. But none of that can stop the message. In fact, it actually helps to advance the message that God uses it for good. And The disciples and the Christians, they begin to spread out. Look at Acts 11 verse 19. I want to show you this real quick. I just showed it to you a second ago, but I want you to see it carefully. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. So they started fleeing from different, different places because the fires of persecution were being raised. And notice it says they traveled as far as Phineas and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And then it goes on to talk about how that all that began to change, right? In those next verses that they begin to preach the gospel also to the Gentiles, but... What I want you to see is that what 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 the world meant to stop the gospel, God used for good to advance and spread the gospel. How fitting that this section, Acts one through twelve. Look at Acts twelve verse twenty three. The section that we're going to be studying over the next couple of months it ends with King Herod being struck dead by God. You say why? Well, in verse twenty two, people respond to a a speech that he gave, and they said, this is not the voice of a man, this is the voice of God. And it says that, verse 23, the angel of the Lord smote him, that is, it killed him, because he gave not God the glory. And he's eaten of worms, and he gave up the ghost. And then notice the contrast in verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. You know what this says? It says that nothing is going to stop God from accomplishing His work in this world. So the book of Acts does not teach us Christians won't suffer or that they're going to be delivered of every kind of pain and suffering that they face in this world. No, no, no. But what it does teach is that nothing will stop God from accomplishing His work and that we will triumph with Him in the end. Are you discouraged? Are you facing opposition? I want you to take heart because we are on the winning side. The message of this crucified man from Nazareth who's risen from the dead, who's ascended into heaven, who reigns over all things, who commands that his name be preached to all the nations. Well, he outlasted, and his gospel outlasted the Roman Empire. And this mission is going to triumph over all the kingdoms of this world. We're a part of something that cannot fail. So let me speak to you, my Christian friend. As we finish the service today, God still has unfinished business in this world. The mission and the message continues, and we are His means. It's through Him that we have been called to this work, and though we will face opposition, we will ultimately triumph. And to my non-Christian friends, there was some counsel or some advice given in Acts chapter 5 by a, a man named Gamaliel. And he said basically this, that if what these apostles are sharing is true, he said that if you resist it, you're fighting against God. He said, so just be careful at what you're doing. Gamaliel was not a Christian. I don't know if he became one. He wasn't at the time at least. But he was just saying, let's be careful how we treat these men because if this really is from God then we're not only fighting against them, we are fighting against God. If you're not a Christian, I hope you understand that if you've not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus, that you are against God. You're on the opposite team, if you will. And you will never, never triumph against God. So I would say to you that today is the day for you to switch teams. Today is the day for you to repent of sin and trust in Christ. And the promise of salvation is for you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for allowing us to look at this lengthy section today. Thank you for the encouragement we have in your word. and Lord, I pray right now, if there's any here in this place or any watching online who are not saved by you, who have never repented, turned of their sins, believed in your name for salvation. Pray they will do that today, even right now, to call out to you. They don't need fancy words. They don't need to be led in a specific prayer by me. They need to call out to you from a true and sincere heart, admitting their sin and guilt before you and asking for you to save them by what Christ has done on the cross. I pray that even now they'll put their trust in Jesus who died and rose again to save them. Lord, for those of us who are saved, who have trusted in you, we have a message to share, a mission to fulfill. We are the means that you have chosen to do this work. We're going to face all kinds of Persecution, rejection, we're going to be hated. God, you triumph in the end. And may we be faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.